Nick. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Woo. Woo. How are you? I'm all right. I'm good. It's nice to be with you. It's another podcast. Number seven. Number seven of Science Vinyl. Is it? Mm. Oh, man. Got a cup of tea. Second from last one. That's right. Oh, that's good, man. It's good to be here. In Salisbury. You're in Salisbury, so Steve's made a special trip in a mini that he doesn't like today. In a mini that I don't like, down to for a spring podcast. We you get to do our first podcast in the evening. You hired one. I know, it's light outside. Yeah. Birds are tweeting. Um, there's lots of evil cats about. My cat's currently scared to go outside. <laughs> I think there's a lot of tomcats Being striding bullies. around the neighbourhood with their balls hanging low. Frank doesn't have any knackers. And did you remove so them? So they were removed, not by me, but by a previous owner. So I think he's mortified, scared. He's like a big, fat eunuch <laughs> stumbling from fence to fence. Varys. Yeah, while there's very virile sort of men. Right. Look like sort of rugby player second rows striding around looking for, for female call, are cats. Are you calling Frank a beta? A what? A beta, like a, a beta male. A beta male? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Instead no, of an alpha male. I think he's more like an omega male. <laughs> See my, uh, That's a Greek, Greek alphabet letter yeah. joke. <laughs> mm. yeah. Anyway, so it's good to be here. So Steve's made the special trip to Salisbury. So Steve and I are currently sitting in um, my beautiful house. And um, we're going to be talking to you today in a science vinyl kind of way. Yeah, so Nick, I can't imagine anyone got this far, but what is science vinyl? Science vinyl is an exploration of science through the medium of um, very popular and sometimes interesting musical albums. Right, and what is the album this week? The album this week is an album that you've chosen, Steve. Yeah, I chose it this week. Which do, you know, is, do you know why I chose it? No. I was going through the, 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 the timeline of, of everything we've, we've picked. So we had something from the 50s. We had Kind of Blue. Then we had stuff. Then we had uh, we've had uh, an album from the seventies. We had Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And uh, and and then we had something that was very new. That we had uh, Adele. We did. Uh, and Wolf Alice. And I just thought the the noughties, There was nothing in nothing the, in the we're noughties. Missing, we're missing. We've got stuff a nineties. We've got a couple of nineties. We've got one. We had, yeah. We've got one from the eighties, which is coming up. Yes. Um, not yet. Oh my god! But uh, you guys <laughs> enjoy that. For, for the listeners, what we've done actually is we've recorded these these albums out of order, so we know, so they don't know what's coming, but we no, know we what's know. coming. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Abbey Road and Let It Be. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah, we called them back to back. We did. Anyway, so um, yeah, the album this week, guys, is an album by a band called The Killers. It's called Hot Fuss. What an album! Oh, you know what? I get. It, I'm not a big fan of The it. Killers. I've seen them live. I've seen on multiple, yeah, they're not very good live. No, they're not. No. no, the album is, it's a very good album, and it's evocative of a particular time. I would have. That's exactly what I would say. I, yes. I would. It, it was for me is when the Naughties found their voice. They were still kind of hangover from girl power and 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 uh, Brit pop. Yeah, there was a bit of things. Travis hanging around, wasn't yeah. there? Coldplay. Coldplay were, were just starting to to. They they just dropped. Um, a rush of blood to the head. I think parachutes and all that business was 99. Um, And the post-radiohead thing was on. Exactly. And then we dropped a bit of going back, a bit of retro stuff going back. 2004. Bruce Springsteen-y type, 80s type. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, nothing really kind of exemplifies that kind of resurgence of indie uh, that happened in the kind of uh, early early to mid-noughties, I think is is hot fast by the killers. Boredom on this liberty, cause we're the beast, it's not the party. 
So grab a beer and have a bite with some tunes inside my head. Relax and try and have a laugh with the boys from in this Oh, so Steve, hot first, what was going on? What was going on? So we were back in 2004. Oh, right. Right, so cast your mind back. What was what was Nick doing in 2004? I was defending my PhD. Is that right? Yeah, July I was, 2004. I was still an undergraduate in 2004. Yeah, yeah I'm old. Um, uh, yeah, no, so I was just finishing. I was in the last year of my, of my undergraduate degree. Uh, so, you know, it's... Well, music's very important to you at that point. Yeah. You know, still very... Today, but, like, contemporary music is very important. It's how I think back on what I was doing at yeah. that point in my life. I um, was working in an editing company, Biomed Central yeah. in central London, and I used to do a lot of filing. I was an editorial assistant. While I was writing my PhD up, I was kind... Some, needed, some, needed some bones, some clams. Needed some, some, some cash. Yeah. And I was working for this company, um, and I was contacting academics and saying... Um, you know you. Um, Should we do a role play? Let's pretend. I'm, let's pretend I'm an academic. <laughs> let's go. Oh, hello. We've received this article by such and such and such and this. Would who you like you, to review it? Who, who are you? I'm an editorial assistant at Genome Biology. What? what why are you contacting me? How did you get this number? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go out for a drink? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, you send them an email, and then they they would say they were going to review a, a journal article, and yeah. then they wouldn't review it, and then you'd have to email them Fuck several times. But I was so kind of, but I, I was different from the other guys in the office because I was very much a communicator. I like to talk to people right. rather than email, so right. I used to phone them up. But I had a bit of a patter on the phone, so I remember phoning oh, so you, up. You had like a little list, like like you're a salesman, like you're trying to flog. No, 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 no. I just did it off the cuff. Uh, I just okay. knew it. You know, right. I'd be like. Okay. Oh, Hello. Yeah, it was like it was like Hi, that. I'm Nick. Like, so, so imagine me. Have you heard of a guy called George Church? Yeah, of course. Very yeah, Harvard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he would rev- yeah. he would review articles, and really? he wouldn't he wouldn't get them back. So he rarely review them, but he yeah. would he would get he'd get back occasionally, and um, met, often I you'd have to chase him at Stanford. Did he you? Was there, yeah. He's, he had. I remember in those days he had a good internet picture of himself. With a massive beard. He had a big beard, but he was caught. It was like he was caught by surprise on an old-fashioned analog <laughs> like phone. They got busted turn, doing something naughty. <laughs> turning around with a very angry face. Like, in, in so anyway, across the uh, so uh, in uh, across the pond from Harvard in the UK, who was prime minister in two thousand four? Uh, two thousand four. It was Tony Blair. Tony. Tony, Tony the year after the Iraq. That's right. Crossing. Yeah. So so um, if you're a few things that happened in two thousand four to kind of cast your mind back. It was the year that the, there was the tragedy at uh, um, Morecambe Bay where the Chinese cockle pickers uh, all got caught in the tide. Oh, Remember that? I do. Um, uh, the, also happened the US uh, uncovered the, um, the uh, systematic torture of um, those prisoners at Abu Ghraib. That all happened in 2004. Cheerful, so, cheerful, cheerful stuff. Here. The uh, Queen Mary II was christened. Right. Yeah. Um, that momentous occasion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that I know that the QM2... Yeah, I was just trying You've to get got any interesting that, ones. Like, well, I've got lots of sciencey interesting ones. Just, but just trying to make people think about like where, where, where they were and what they were doing. Do you know? Um, so what? So the, the big thing that happened scientifically in two thousand four. No idea. Um, opportunity touchdown on Mars. Oh right, okay. That's a big deal, isn't it? We've was got a it? robot on Mars. Oh. It's the only planet that we know that's exclusively populated by robots. Really? 
Well, what else is there? Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, there's loads of robots. How about Jupiter? No robots in Jupiter. Right. Yeah. Like, just driving Venus? about. What's the, what's the robot planet in Transformers that Eric oh, Idle, or Orson Welles does the voice for? Eric um, Not Eric Idle's in it, Transformers the movie, but uh, Orson Welles does the voice for it. Orson Welles? Yes, Orson Welles I is in Transformers the movie. I dead a long time ago. Not Transformers the movie in 99, I think. Or, oh my goodness. Or maybe even earlier. No. Um, uh, yeah, so that happened. Uh, Spaceship One, you know, Virgin Galactic, that went into space for the first time in well, 2004. Well, that, that was the start of something, that, wasn't brilliant. it? Brilliant. Yeah, we're still going there. Give, give it time. It wasn't that long ago. Um, uh, Francis Crick died. In 2004. Oh, well, that's sad. That is sad. He's a legend. Um, it's the first time we ever demonstrated the Bose-Einstein condensate. That's interesting. Which was, uh, which is a kind of macroscopic material that shares a single wave function, which is quite important. Hasn't mm. really done much since, but probably won a Nobel Prize at some point. Um, what, who, who won the Nobel Prize in 2004? I don't know. It was four. It was three people. One person, I can't pronounce this, their name. It was Erwin Rose, Avram Hashenko. And, and Aaron Kleenclover, who run it, who won the Nobel Prize for um, uh, the ubiquitous mediated protein degradation. So this is medicine. That was chemistry. Oh really? Yeah. What was medicine then? No, um, I don't know what medicine. Is. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't that one. I don't really care about medicine. I only care about chemistry. Um, it's not really chemistry, to be honest, is it? That it's uh, biology. No, but a lot of chemistry, a lot of chemistry Nobel prizes aren't actually going to chemists. Um, but in the background of that, um, obviously the killers dropped out uh, their... I would say still their greatest work. I really enjoyed the second album, but the first album in particular, Hot Fuzz, um, which uh, which by all ways you want to measure it is pretty is pretty is done really well. It's sold um, two million copies in the UK, three million copies in the US. Um, uh, some of the particular tracks on it, uh, so particularly, um, uh, sorry, what was it? It was Mr. Brightside, which we'll talk about. Um, that has never not been in the UK top forty since its release because of downloads. It's been in the top 15 downloaded songs since it's, since it's released and has never left. What? It's, yeah. I don't believe it. Yeah. Mr. Brightside? Yeah. It's been in the top 40 singles charts since 2004. Down, download charts. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And do you know why? I think I know why, Nick. It's why? because it's supplanted Come On Eileen at uh, weddings. Everyone likes a bit of Mr. Brightside, you know? Come in, everyone goes running on the dance floor. Is they it? Their, they get their boogie on. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that was that was the thing. <laughs> yeah, the week then probably didn't play it at your wedding. Um, what? <laughs> no, don't think so. I'm having to check that now because I don't believe it. Which charts are we talking about? I can find it exactly. So uh, no, don't be boring. Just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Official singles download charts. Yeah, it was. So the, the album was not on there. Listeners, not on there. It, <laughs> You can go to the. I can jump on the link. <laughs> no, come on, crack on. I'm just winding you up. Um, uh, so it was shortlisted for uh, Grammys, Brit Awards, um, and the Mercury Music, um, but didn't get win any of them. Uh, no, so it didn't win anything. But I think it has has stood this holds up against time. I think if you go back and listen to it, it sounds of its of of the moment. Um, but but brilliant, you know, influenced. I think you know, say by by Bowie, Smashing Pumpkins, Duran Duran, Morrissey, all those kind of post punk. Uh, like mm. new wave bands, I think. Yeah, uh, quite, quite, quite melodic, uh, and uh, it's got some ba absolute bangers in it. The first of which I think we should talk about now. Yes, bring it, Steve. <laughs> Yeah. 
Oh, Steve, Jenny, Jenny, um, Jenny was a friend of mine. Yes, track one. Jenny Ann Dudna. Do you know who she was? Dudna. How do you spell Dudna? D O U D N A. Dudna. 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 Bloody name. Okay. Anyway, Who's she you? is the one of the people who found out about CRISPR. Ah. So I'm interested in CRISPR. So I consider her my friend. But have you ever met her? No. She's the one from Berkeley. Um, no, she's at... Yes, she's at Berkeley. Yes, I do know. Yeah, I, do yes. know, I know of her. She and Emmanuel Charpentier were the first to propose that they could be used for editing of genomes. Right. So um, that's quite important, right? She's one of the top... We did a whole podcast on CRISPR, so if people want to know about it, they should go and check that out. They should do, shouldn't they, Steve? But maybe just a brief overview. What is CRISPR, Nick? Um, Why Crisp- is it important? CRISPR's a way of sort of actively changing the genomes of um, of organisms and cells. Cutting up DNA and sticking it back together. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's quite interesting because it evolved as a kind of immune system for bacteria. So they found little bits of virus d- DNA and they kept them in their own genomes in particular places. Um, and basically they could use that as a kind of template, like an immune system. Mm. So if ever they got infected again, the sequence would kind of pair up and be able to chop it up. So it worked like an enzyme, directed, directing an enzyme to an invader. It's kind of primitive immune system. It's fascinating. And what do you think about the new CRISPR babies? I've heard about these. Anyway, it's a Chinese dude called He. Yeah. Which is confusing when you read articles about him. <laughs> because he does a, a lot of things. It's a capital letter. I, I so don't know. It's, like a, it's like a God is thing. Chinese. There's like a God thing going. <laughs> so He... <laughs> it's yeah. not yet clear precisely I, I, I which laws capital letter he broke. <laughs> so, like yeah. a God. so that makes me makes me chuckle. But basically what he did was he used CRISPR in, um, well, apparently because it's not been published. So right. you just have to take it as read. He um, changed the genome of a baby of a woman who'd paid him, or maybe he'd paid her, who knows, so that the babies wouldn't get AIDS. So basically changed the receptor on their white blood cells but in essential, essentially, what he did was he—it's kind of like a non—it's—it's um, it's a non-life-threatening disease. It's not going to kill you immediately. It's not like a really severe phenotype. So there it just be. lowers your risk of getting AIDS. All right. As far as we know. Yeah. As far as we know. Yeah. No, it does lower your risk of getting AIDS. We know. But it doesn't know if it does, does it do other things. Does it do other bad things? Um. Or is it just because there are some there's some bits DNA that if you change it, as far as I know, it just does one thing, right? You know, like can affect your metabolizing metabolism of a drug or eye color. No, or I don't think so because certain people have it naturally the mutation. Okay. Anyway, so basically he's done that, and uh, there's a big controversy because he was a postdoc in some big dude's lab in America in Stanford, and essentially what's happened is he's been investigated because he was supposed to have helped. Him. The American professor. Yeah, Stephen Quake. I, I know Stephen Quake. Do you personally? Yeah, I met him a couple of times. Have I've you? Been di- I've been for dinner with Stephen Quake. Have you? What, yeah. did, he, what did he eat? Uh, I think it was... Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't think it was particularly weird. Was it... He's quite an intense kind of human. Was it babies and <laughs> small furry deer? <laughs> Pandas. Nick, <clears throat> Mr. Brightside. Yes. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the bright side of something, as in always look on the bright side, but, n- but not that. Oh, yeah. Um, 
there's, I want to talk about the moon. The moon? So the moon's got a bright side and a dark side. Well, changes, doesn't it? Not much. What? The, 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 the moon rotates at the same speed at which it goes around, so it's always, the, the same face is nearly always facing us. Yeah, but when it's a new moon, the other side is light. That's true. But we can't see it. We can't so it's got see a dark it. side. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've got to see. It's a side that you can't see. There's a Mr. Bright side. Yeah, 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 yeah. The okay, side. the bright side. Yeah. All right, so you're saying the bright side is the bit that we can see. Yeah. Even bright. when it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, when it's dark, we can't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's no sun on it. Bright side's on the other side. Exactly. Yeah. So the bright side... It's not the, that hard a comment. The there's bri- a bright side <laughs> of the moon and a dark side of the moon. <laughs> so basically, the Mr. Brightside changes from time to time. To time. <laughs> anyway, tell me about the bright um, side. So, okay. So there's a. Bit, so when do you think was the first time we saw the bright side... The, sorry, the dark side of the moon? The, so we were looking at the moon for millennia, right? Yeah, Since yeah, yeah. Since we could look up. So by, like, by, the, by bright side, you mean, I mean the, bit the dark a, side, you mean the bit that's around the back? I mean the bit Which may be fully illuminated. <laughs> so when was the first time the bit that we can't see was but, seen? But how do we know that? Uh, yeah, how do we know what it's like? How do we know it's there? Maybe the moon's just like half a moon. Exactly. So the flat earthers. So, when was, so the question is, when was the, the first time the, the other side of the moon was observed? I would speculate. Yeah. I'd speculate that during the Americans... Going there, they sent something span around it. Close. It wasn't the Americans. It was the Russians. Was it really? It was the no Russians. shit. 1959. Really? Um, when they photographed it using the Lunar 3 space probe. Shit. Um, when was Yuri Gagarin? That was about the same time, wasn't it? That was in the 50s. Yeah. The, the, the Soviet Academy of Sciences published the first atlas of the far side of the moon in 1960. And the Apollo uh, 8 astronauts were the first humans to see it when they went round and then took that famous, the very famous picture of uh, Earthrise. Yeah. Um, um, and so there's some quite interesting differences between the the, um, the the bright side of the moon and the dark side of the moon. The front and the back. <laughs> the front and the back. And we don't really know why. I think it's something to do, because I well, read a lot of Patrick Moore books. Yeah. You know Patrick Moore's mad on the moon. Is he? He was like an expert. He was consulted, I think, during the moon landing. Is that right? Yeah, he's the like games a, master. He's like an up. amateur astronomer, but he'd, done, he'd made really detailed, detailed maps. Right. Of the, the, obviously... Yeah, the, 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 the side bright, of the moon the that you can see. The bright side. <laughs> the bright side, even when it's dark. <laughs> and he was really keen on all of these different phenomena, especially that happened at the limb. It's sort of flashes. People had thought they seemed flat. Anyway, yeah. that's a different story. So, um, yeah, the other side's weird, is it? So the difference is, so there's the um, one side, the side, the bright side, the one we can see, um, is covered with. They're called um, they're called Maria or Maria, I think, because um, they're Latin for the word seas. Since the uh, the reason is because the early astronomers thought that these planes that they could see in the sky in the in the moon sorry were were, were water were lunar water but they didn't know any better yeah so if you look at the front the bit side of the moon you can see it's got loads of loads of pot marks on it and not many of these kind of flat like sea these marriers oh so there's more marriers on the other side no way yes there's way more on the other side oh, and less really? and less and I didn't it, know that about you know so about one percent of the far side is covered with these um uh, these marriers and about thirty. One percent on the near side. So really? it's, a lar- it's a large difference. Yeah, and we don't really know why. One of them is thought that it's to do with the actual um, uh, um, geology of the moon that it actually it's undergoing. It's, it's recycled more of its yeah. surface on that side. Other th- people think that it's about a collision called the Thea uh, uh, collision. T h e i a. Thea. Yeah. Okay. Thea. I think. Yeah. They, they also there's some variations in the thickness of the crust. Right. Uh, on on the bright side and the dark side and they think that, that that's that's where the the origin of the the theory about it being to do with the um 
the geochemical yes. um, uh, movement of the Earth when it, when it was still geologically active. Crikey. Which was a long time ago. Smile like you mean it, Steve. Smile. Yeah. Smile for me. Smile for me. Smile like you mean it. That's better. So Steve's just done gonna, a good example. You're going to talk about like um, uh, crow's feet. No. No. Okay. I've got more than you of crow's feet. Oh, okay. So smile like you mean it. So this is about fake smiles and real smiles. Yeah. Did you know that you know the cheese smile? The cheek when you smile for a photo, you don't really mean it. Yeah, yeah. You move your mouth, but you don't move your eyes. You don't move your whole face. So did you know that the muscles that control the mouth bit and the sort of eye generally bit are controlled by completely different parts of the brain? Really? Yeah. Apparently. So this is. This so, you is can, so, so you can look in people's brain and pretend when they're fake smiling. Because yeah, blood exactly. Will rush so the fake there. smile. That's the sort of cheese file it yeah. involves only the contraction of something called the zygomatic major muscle so we can't voluntarily contract and i don't fully believe this um, article i read but we can't fully voluntarily contract the uh, what's called the orbicularis oculi muscle so that's the one when you sort of like when you want to do that you sort of have to go <laughs> do you know what i mean you have to sort right. of, you have to sort of build yourself up psych yourself up and sort of go <laughs> like, yeah. I've, I've got to try and do it fake you need, your eyes are stretching and your eyes. but yeah. anyway and you, we know this because people who have brain damage on one side of the brain in a particular region, yeah, when they try and smile, they've got asymmetric um, smiles. So basically, um, the smile's normal when they have, um, you know, there's the cheese smile bits of yeah. the brain. But if they have the other bit of the brain damaged, they have like a half-sided smile. So when someone's actually smiling, if they had brain damage, they don't do a proper smile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, then, yeah, I mean, it would be weird getting, having a relationship with a person like that because then you yeah. can see when they were lying to you, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. So when a patient with damage to the motor cortex on the left hemisphere, the smile's asymmetrical, the right smile not moving. The same patient spontaneously laughs. The smile is normal with no asymmetry. I mean, the genuine smile is controlled by a different part of the brain to oh. the cheese smile, which is really, really weird. I mean, I mean, you can understand how people... Do you think they just found someone with brain damage and said, "Oh, it's weird," and then they put him in a in a him or her in a um, in a MRI? And just Possibly, because sort of, then you'd have to do it on a few people. I always think that when they discover these, so, so the early days of um, uh, neuroscience, basically all they had were these very anecdotal examples of where someone had like a damage to a very specific part of their head, right? And yeah. then they could but manage to live before we had M fMRI. And then you always think, well, that's just an, an N of one, isn't it? And they yeah. make these kind of wild. Uh, extrapolations about how the brain works, and just like because that's I, all you got when you got people. You can't just mash up parts of people's brains. Yeah, but we don't really know anything, do we? Like, well, you, you have to build up pictures. Yeah. When you read any Oliver Sacks books, they're all case studies. Mm. But you kind of have to build it up gradually over time. It's just takes long. Yeah, I need to be like, I'm, I'm with he here on uh, on CRISPR. We just need to get on with it. Yeah. We anyway, start so making humans with brain damage. <laughs> Nick. Hello, Steve. What's next? Somebody told me. So, um, if someone tells you something, yeah, and you're, you're something, you don't quite believe it, yeah, I want to talk to you about the science of lying. Yes. Right. Um, so that the 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 person that first started this, yes, um, is a academic called Paul Ekman. You ever heard of him? No. So he's um, he uh, he's still about he's eighty five. Um, he uh, works. Uh, he's an American psychologist and emeritus professor at uh, uh, UCSF in San Francisco. 
Um, and he was one of the first people to um, look in th about this idea for micro-expressions. I don't know if you've heard this. So the no. idea is, is that when you're about to, that you kind of involuntarily make some kind of contraction in your face. And oh, right. this is like kind of what poker players and Darren Brown would notice. Exactly right. Right. So, so, um, and there was a there was a um, document. Oh, sorry, there was a, a, sh a TV show called Light to Me that starred Tim Roth. I don't know if you saw it. It was on Sky One. It looked like one of those sort of wanky American so things that it, went this, on for twenty series. This was based on 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 Paul Ekman. The whole thing oh, based yeah. around his his research. Oh yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so he was the idea. He came up with essentially. I think there were there were six um, micro expressions he says that you know when you're doing it so, and one of them's disgust and one of them's happiness uh, quite a lot of them are associated with negative emotions um, yeah. or traditionally classed as negative emotions and uh, and he went through and he, he got all of these um, you know published lots and lots of papers and it's like a lot of things in academia you know huge success people are like talking about it. he's you know still one one of the most cited the 59th of the hundred most cited psychologists of the 20th century right so he's big deal even amongst psychologists um, and it's and it's total rubbish just total rubbish. Well, he can't do it. Can't do it. He can do it. Like, he's brilliant at it. Um, so they do all these double-blind trials, and they got the biggest ever case. They tested a total of 20,000 people from all walks of life, um, looking and, and, and trained them to be able to read these micro-expressions. Um, and then um, said, and then they gave them an example of those microexpressions. Is, is this person feeling disgust? Uh, are they are they um, are they feeling sexual desire? You know, all these kind of things. You know, are they smug? Is actually a really easy one to say, apparently, right? Which uh, smug, smug. So, so if you're smug and you're telling someone something, it means you're probably lying, because really? basically, uh, so he you're says. You're sometimes quite he, smug. He, he, thank you. No, but no, no. Sorry, the the microexpression smug. I'm just smug all the time, Nick. <laughs> Um, and it's really famous. You know the you know the um, shot where um, the one he used to classify it is um, uh, Clinton saying, "I did not have sex with that woman." Oh right. And then he, he does lying. then he does a micro expression of smugness. Does he? And that's like the, the, the canonical example of smugness he uses. Anyway, but they they, they did this on twenty thousand people. They did a, 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 a double blind study. Well, they did a study to see whether people could do it, and part of it was was double blinded. Um, and he only found fifty people who could read them. But when you do find them, they're very accurate high predictors, but most people can't see them. Oh, so this is my favourite song on the album. Which one? All these things that oh, I have it's done. A good one. It's a good one. I love this tune. It's nice. It slows down a bit, doesn't it, after somebody told me. This is a short one. Yeah. I just think about all the things that I haven't done. <laughs> because I'm well, reading... You were thinking about what to talk about. Like, yeah, I'm what? reading a book at the moment. all these things I have done. I'm reading a book at the moment yeah. about Werner Heisenberg. Right. Who is a very famous physicist. Of who, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Who, if people out there don't know, he, uh, he was one of the pioneers of the quantum physics. And he was the first person to say, actually, like, when things get really small... You can't actually know more than like one thing about them. That's basically the uncertainty principle. That's exactly. You can't know momentum and position. You can't. You can't. Yeah. It, and that's an inherent. It's not because of a limitation in what you do. It's an inherent property of nature, and that's the thing which freaks most it's, people. It's weird, out. isn't it? Freaks Einstein out his and, whole and, life. He never then, got and, over and it. And you can interchange them as well. That's what's so weird about it. Anyway, you, you can turn up position. Uh, so turn up position and that turns down momentum and vice versa. Anyway, so he um, he was a very famous scientist. He did a lot of stuff, man. And like he got the Nobel Prize when he got the Nobel Prize for work that he did when he was 23 years old. Awesome. 
you know, I think when I was doing when I was 23 years old, uh, you know, I was probably lying on my face on Tooting High Street. Abseiling down Tooting Beck High Street. And in, in a nightclub. And, you know, it's just incredible. He was, he was almost a concert pianist. He went walking. He was a bit Nazi at times. <laughs> <laughs> but what, weren't we all, Nick? It was just—it was just a phase everyone was going through. Yeah, so he—he's—I mean, he's—I'm just—he's just a very uh, interesting guy. Lived a very full life, um, but yeah, he almost failed his PhD thesis as well. His vibe, yeah. Was it? I bet he was vibed by like someone else, some <coughs> other monster of physicist. He was vibed like De Broglie or Einstein or something. He was vibed by—I'm just checking here. Um, yes, it was a guy called Professor Willy Vien. Don't know him. Anyway, he's a physicist, but basically he did his pitch in something totally different, some fluid dynamics or something like that. Yeah. But he was just working for just, fun. So, so, so he liked the thing you guys know prize for... He'd already he published... Didn't, didn't even, wasn't even working on his PhD. He'd already published world-leading work depressing, isn't it? in quantum physics. I try really hard But then in job. his viva, he almost didn't get awarded it. The dude wanted to fail him because yeah. he couldn't work out on a piece of paper how to calculate the resolving power of a microscope. Ooh. Which he'd used. He'd used these things. So he asked him a question about some instrument he'd used yeah. in his thesis. Couldn't do it. And he went, well, actually, you know, you can't uh, work out the resolving power of this instrument. Well, can you tell me, how, do you, how would you work out the resolving power of a telescope? Right. And this is the sort of question that the kind of like a very basic undergrad would be able to get right. Couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah. Couldn't bloody do it. So he almost failed his PhD. Wow. But then he went on to pioneer. Also, I, I mean, I do this, right? I'm about next week I'm going to examine a PhD thesis. And um, it's a bit weird the way we, we have this examination, which is, you know, high stress, high pressure environment. And that's the exact opposite of how you do science, right? Science, you go away in, in the room on your own and think about something really hard or do an experiment. It's never done under pressure. So I think it's a little bit harsh to expect people to, you know, in, in the heat of the moment of the, the biggest exam of your life to maybe make a bit of a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I do it for fun sometimes. I'll ask them a very sort of an interesting general question. But just in your lab. Just throw out a question. If anyone gets this wrong, yeah, they're if fired. I'm, if I'm doing a vibe, oh, okay. Oh, no, I do it in the. I mean, yeah. I, but I'm, I'm not going to fail them on it. I wouldn't be that nasty. Yeah. I just think. You just think less yeah. of them. <laughs> but then, but then my, I, my mind comes to Werner Heisenberg, who was like a genius. who couldn't do something very basic. And I think, well, actually, I'm not going to be that hard on that guy. Because he's probably, probably not. She's as good doing as, all right. Uh, Heisenberg. Anyway, there you go. All the things that I've done, pretty much jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, got a quick one for you. Oh, you know, it might take a while. Come we on, come we haven't had any smut on the, in the, on the podcast for a while. Um, Andy, you're a star. Why are there lots of tunes about people on this tune? There's Andy, you're a star. Yeah. Jenny was a friend, a friend of, of mine. mine. Well, Natalie, more, believe in me, He's Natalie. a Mormon, isn't he? So maybe he's just got lots of mates. Mm. Um, um, anyway, um, do you know you can name... You, there are stars named after people, and there are stars that... And the majority of stars are not. So, so, so when we, you know, people discover stars... That's a fascinating of, observation. I'm about to tell you a little bit about it. <laughs> so um, most of them are... Um, they're all like Greek shit. They're, des they're normally designations alpha, like, um, like letters and numbers. Of a right? constellation or something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, just of, of a general the constellation in general, but also just individual stars. Yeah, um, Deneb. Deneb, exactly. That's one of my favourites. Some, some, some are named after famous, uh, 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 famous uh, astronomers. So there's things like um, uh, there's no Andy star. I had to look for that. There's not there's not one. Um, there's Barnard star. There, Kepler, 
Um, there's one for um, Kepler's Got a Star, as does um, there's the uh, Schwarzschild star, which is the physicist named after the working out the event horizon of a black hole. Um, there is um, lots of. Is there JLo star? <laughs> there's no JLo Pink? star. But there is these there is companies that set up where you can buy a star with it. Really? What you can do is you can have a star <coughs> named after yourself, right? So 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 when I was researching this, I was like, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a star called the Science Shed. And I you went didn't. onto this website. You did I nearly got to the end. I was like, I'm just going to see if this is like official in any way, right? So the um, the uh, the uh, the IAU, uh, which is the International Inter International Astron Astronomical Union, which is the uh, governing body and things like this. Um, ref this says that um, so, so while many private companies offer the right to name a star for a fee, they have no legal standing to assign the star of any name and can offer no guarantee that uh, the, the name being noted. The IUA does not recognise this practice, and on its website, we describe this practice as as uh, charlatanry. Well, I'm not surprised <laughs> because it's right, isn't it? You can't just set up a company and say, oh, companies, you know, so basically they go around and they find stars that haven't got any designation or a number. I just don't think they do anything. And I they think just they say, just, I think they've just got a, a website where they just take people's money. Yeah. <laughs> and, then set, and then basically print off a certificate. And they don't take people's money, Steve. They take morons' money. <laughs> and they nearly got mine. <laughs> On top. On top. You know what this made me think of? I can guess, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember in the James Bond film Goldeneye? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you remember what she was called? Uh, um, Pazikilor. On a top. On a top. What was her first name? She's called Xena on a top. Oh my God. Anyway, she's called Xena on a top. A um, odd job. That's who I was thinking of there. But you know, that's different. No, 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 no. You, yeah. Do you remember what she did? Xenia on a top. I don't know. Do you remember her method of killing people? In Goldeneye? Yeah. Oh, yeah, she used to crush people. There was um, Famke Janssen played that person. Yeah. Yeah, she used to crush people with her thighs. Yeah, she'd get them in a headlock and see whether she could kill them with her thighs. Uh, yeah. Do you think you could crush a man's skull by gripping them with your thighs? Skull, absolutely not. No. I reckon you could probably strangle someone, though. I didn't investigate round, the round, the. I don't, it wasn't like the mountain in Game of Thrones. She was surely strangling them around the neck. Asphyxiation. Oh, that's I what, thought she was trying what, to break their You thought they crushed, skulls. like, just... But anyway, obviously I didn't think that through, okay. but then I came across a lot of internet things where there were women who crush melons with their thighs. What? The, on the internet, there's a, a lady called thing? Courtney Olsen. No, she's like a she's like a kind of muscly lady. Like but a is strong it a sexy woman. thing? Is it well, like... I didn't get around, <laughs> if that's what you mean. She looked like a muscly woman. Did I ask that? And she's sitting, on, she's sitting on a kind of strange bench structure, and she's got a melon between her legs, and she goes... You're talking like a, <laughs> like a, like a watermelon. <laughs> And it pops. Yeah, it's not a fucking honeydew melon. I don't know. I'm just. It's obviously a watermelon. I don't know. It's a watermelon. Don't look at me like this is. And anyway, who gives a shit what kind of melon it is? It's a fucking melon. And if he squashes it, do you know how much force is required to crack a skull? In newton meters. Well, just in newton. How much force? Compressive force. I reckon five hundred newtons. Five thousand newtons between between three and five thousand. So that. So, sorry guys at home, so if you put, you'd have to put um, a weight of about 400 kilograms, so half a tonne, on someone's skull before it would crush, basically. On a me someone's melon? On someone's head. No, but on a melon? Oh, no, sorry. on a head, I'm talking oh, about head. You're not talking about melons No, now. a melon's oh. much less than that. 
It was about 400. It's yeah, about yeah, 500. Yeah. So a melon, right. melon requires 150 kilos. So that's okay, so 1,500 yeah. units. Anyway, you couldn't do it. <laughs> so that thing with on the top crushing Pierce Brosnan's head, which is not true. I think she was just suffering. Just ah. can leave it there, Steve. The next track, the next track, Nick, is a kind of interesting one because this actually, I mentioned to you this before we started the podcast, but this, if you're from outside the UK, um, which we know some of the, uh, the science vinyl listeners are, uh, this track, track eight, is called Change Your, Your Mind. But if you bought, bought the album in the UK like I did, it's called Glamorous Indie Rock and Roll. So I got an option, which one I wanted to do. Oh, um, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I don't know. What, there's no explanation, as far as I can tell, why they chose it. They just thought it would work better for the UK market. It's quite well known in indie rock and roll. Yeah, I love it? that one. Um, it's one of my favourite ones. In the That's album. not on the American release. Uh, no, How just what? on the British one. Um, so what I wanted. So indie rock and roll. So what sounds better, Nick? Uh, vinyl or CD? Well, I mean, to listen to indie rock old, and roll, it's a bit of an old thing, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of different. I mean, personally, I like to put vinyl on. Why does vinyl sound? Why does vinyl sound different? Let me rephrase it. Because it's it's a needle running along a bit of plastic, whereas why, the CDs are laser shining off some binary. But that, shit why, on. why would that make that sound? Why would it make sound because different? the record's more imp- imperfections in the record. Right. Okay. That's that's see, that's a better hypothesis. It, that's one of the reasons. But there's actually a really interesting reason. So back in uh, 1940, a bunch of hip cats got together. Compared to CD, who and called, no, no, who called the Recording Industry Association of America. The RIAA. And they came up with one of the things they were saying is they were trying to standardize vinyls and, and like the, because everyone wants to know how big is the groove going to be, how big is my stylus going to be, how fast is it all going to turn. And up until that point, it was just like gramophones and it was all free for all. There was nothing was standardized. And one of the things they were looking at doing is that you can imagine, so, so as we said before, when a needle goes down the, the groove of a record, it wobbles. And, 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 and it's that wobbling that gives rise to the, to the sound, right? And so you can imagine how. When I have a, a low frequency wobble, so low, so low deep bass notes in my song, and when I have high frequency wobbles, so the high treble notes, that's going to require bigger or shallower um, grooves. And you mentioned if I have a really big groove, so I have really loads of bass notes, what that means is I can't. The, 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 as the record goes round, I need to need to move my. I need to make sure that the distance between the valleys is large. Because otherwise what will happen is that my needle will skip from one groove to the other. And that's what happens if you scratch it, right? Yeah. So, so they came up with this thing so that all of the, um, uh, the frequencies in, uh, in records are not encoded in the plastic. In fact, they're, they're, they're not linear. So actually the low frequencies aren't encoded, are amplified more than the high frequencies in, in records. And this is this so-called RIAA equalization, which has been around since 1940. So what it means is that <clears throat> because it was a way of basically getting more record on, on, on more, more music on your record because they could be closer together because you're not having the low frequency things. But it means that your record player is way more sensitive to those low frequencies. So that kind of rumbly sound you get with records and that kind of warm sound, part of that is because, because there's, less, there's less signal there. It has to be amplified more for the bass notes than the treble oh, notes. And that is just not happening on uh, CD players, which is all digital and as it was recorded in the... In the um, in the uh, in the record and on the on the master. Well, I just like watching them go around, get them out of the packet, and watching them go around. And I like that. I like CDs as well, but I like records more. So you, but you know when you get these kind of hi-fi people that like get really wanky, um, like preamps for the record player. Oh and stuff? yeah. 
That, you need a preamp, don't you, for many needs, but, the, but really expensive ones, they, they have to take into account the fact that they need to amplify the bass notes way more than they need to right. amplify the um, uh, the high-frequency notes in order to get back to what it was when yeah. it was recorded. So, um, yeah, indie rock and roll. There you go. Believe in me, Natalie. Yeah, I don't like this one. This is my least favourite of the whole album. Uh, yes, yeah, it's a bit of a boring one, isn't it? Mm. But um, there's a scientist called... Natalie. Um, yeah, Natalie Battaglia. Never heard of her. She was the first person to discover a rocky planet outside her own solar system. A rocky planet? A rocky it? planet. As opposed to a gas. As planet. opposed to a gas giant. Right. So she and her husband... <clears throat> so typically they're smaller than the gas giants, is that right? The rocky Generally, planets. although yeah. not always. Okay. Um, well, actually, probably almost always. But anyway, she um, she, found, she she pioneered this technique of looking at dips in light. So b- before this, most of the data we had about planets outside our solar system was due to the way in which stars wobbled. Yeah. So if you had something heavy going around a star... It would pull on the star a little bit. Yeah, like the s- gravitational centre, the like barrier centre. around your head. It means you, your head will wobble a bit. Yeah, like a hammer thrower. Yeah, exactly. And you could see that... So that was how it was done before, and she sort of pioneered this method of measuring dips in light. Which you can still see that. So, yeah, the first one was discovered um, sort of in the sort of mid-noughties. Um, and since then, it was kept, called Kepler-10b, by the way. That's the, that's the rocky planet. Uh, I think that's probably the star. Is it Class Oh, no, M? that is the planet. That is the planet. The, I think the... Uh, Do you reckon we'll use... You know, in Star Trek, they used Class M was a planet that, you could, that had breathable atmosphere. What? In Star Trek... Class M. Class M planet was one that oh, had yeah, booze. I've got a hankering to watch an old Star Trek. That's what you saying. That. <laughs> um, Do you remember that... there was one where there were these sort of strange, serious, slimy bat things that would fly around and stuck on people's backs and suck remember. emotion from them? I don't remember the bat one, though. No. I don't really like all the old ones. I bet you like that. So they're a bit more... I like, the old I like ones TNG are... is, all, is, my, is my Star Trek. No, there's too much, um, there's too much emotional shit in those. But with Picard, come on. Picard, um, I like Picard, but I, and I like certain Data. I think one out of every two episodes, there was always ones where there was, um, you know, someone who's got some problems with their feelings. You know, Wolf has emotional well, You'd rather have the Tibbles or whatever they were called. I don't want to know about people's in emotional turmoil. I just want to see fights with the Borg. I just want to see them exploring and seeing strange new worlds. I don't want to know about Wesley Crusher's puberty and <laughs> falling in love with a pink woman with three tits. Anyway, so she thinks then about 2,300 other exoplanets have been discovered. Probably more than that now. So it's pretty amazing. That's Natalie. Thanks, Natalie. Believe in her. Nick, there's um, there's a big cultural uh, like Leviathan that's occurring at the moment. Are you watching Game of Thrones? No, don't like it. <laughs> um, I think but it's naff. You think it's naff? It's like basically it's it's EastEnders. It's, it's EastEnders with the with the world's biggest budget. Yeah, it's it's EastEnders. It's basically East Bloody Enders yeah. with a bunch of characters and a meandering soap-like storyline with with a resolution which is made up as they go along. It's tedious. Um, well, I think most people would disagree with you there. Line of the Duty, on the other hand, I'm addicted to. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Anyway, um, last, la- I don't know if you know, you probably, but last week, actually Monday of this week, there was the biggest 
uh, fight scene ever committed to TV. You or, know what? Or, I have or, to say, I watched a bit of part of it. Well, there you go. The um, White Walkers. It's the, 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 White lo- Walkers? The, lo- the Long Night was the episode. Are they called, called the White Walkers? They're, they're part of them, yeah. They're, they're you couldn't the white... see <laughs> man. I was watching no. it on the TV and it was dark. I had to exactly. turn the contrast up. So you could see something. Yeah, the brightness. Um, and then it just went a bit foggy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's gone a bit foggy. Um, yeah. Uh, so, as with a lot of things in science, we've spoken about this before with uh, the anatomy of, uh, sorry, the um, dynamics of a falling Batman and other aspects. Sometimes you get kind of funny uh, academic papers that are written about popular culture yes. things. Yes. And I came across this paper uh-huh. from uh, Rydar Leistad and Benjamin T. Brown uh, in Injury Epidemiology 2018. Is this a joke thing? No, this is a real paper. Oh, carry on. Called the mortality and survival rate in Game of Thrones. And the guy's gone through, um, and they've like used all of the tools um, which you would typically use to assess the survival rates of drug taking or, or sorry, like a drug trial or, yes. or specifically. So the the, the Kepler Meyer survival analysis yes. is what it's called. And they went through all eighty odd hours of uh, Game of Thrones. And and uh, basically, uh, and they they, apply, they applied they just use this as a tool to basically show the to, to highlight the, the tools on which they use. But at the end the results say of the three hundred and thirty characters that were included, hundred and eighty six had died by the end of the study period. All but two deaths were due to injuries, burns or poisonings, with the majority being caused by assault or operations of war, twenty two point four percent. The survival mean uh, the survival time ranged from eleven seconds to fifty seven hours and fifteen minutes, with the median survival time estimated to be twenty eight hours and forty eight minutes. Is it real time? The probability no the probability of surviving at least one hour in the show was 0.86%. Um, and the analysis revealed worse survival rate for characters who were male, low-born, and did not switch alliances on the show. Oh, my God. What happens if you're a dwarf? What happens if you're a dwarf, The P-value is 0.001%. What's your survival if you're a dwarf? It's like 100%, doesn't it? say. After adjusting for other factors, whether or not a character has switched alliance during the show and how prominently the character features in the show were revealed to be independent predictors of death. one of the album everything will be alright Steve everything will it all be do you think right? everything will be alright yeah it's always alright in the end isn't I'm it? worried about it. Chris Packham's maybe worried about global warming really David Attenborough I was relaxed but Chris Packham's freaked me out what what did Chris Packham say he's all going to die aren't we this Chris I wouldn't I mean he, I mean, uh, other than his qualifications rebellion. of being on the really wild show I don't think you know, and like really loving animals. Is he is he qualified to make ex- extinction predictions? Well, he uh, knows he's shit, man, and he's he's a, he's he's a man after I, your own heart because he's he's definitely a skeptic. Oh, no, I'm, no, I, and I he's like literal that. minded because <laughs> he's got Asperger's syndrome. He's saying I've got Asperger's syndrome. No. <laughs> anyway, anyway, send me some that data. Not that yeah, uh, is that world temperature? No, that's carbon dioxide. Right. Okay, yeah. right. It's the, but they, they correlate very strongly. So, so I'm showing right. Steve a picture of a graph, which is a wiggly line, sort of varying a bit. It's like a massive bit going up at the end, right up. And currently, so do, what were you taught? I don't know whether you remember. I'm very good at. For some reason, I remember numbers. Yeah. Like I remember the percentage of oxygen. Twenty-one. Twenty point nine five percent. Twenty-one. That was what it was when I yeah. was at school. That's what I was taught, 20.95%. Yeah. And carbon dioxide was always 0.03%. Okay. That's what I was taught. Do you know what it is at the moment? Uh, no. 0.041%. Okay. So it's gone up. 25%. A lot. Yeah. That's worrying, man. And it's going up all the time. And do you know how quickly ice is going down? 
In percentage terms? Yeah, how much every 10 years? Oh God, do we lose... I don't know, 2%. 12.8% every 10 years, ice is declining. The probability of a, a summer with an ice-free Arctic in 2050 is something like 100%. So the, the, the ice in the Arctic will be gone in like 50 years. There's nothing we can do. Um, I don't really know. Right. Sea level is going up every year 3.3 millimetres. 3.3 millimetres. Wow, so in 100 years... We've got three well, you do the math, Steve. <laughs> you do the math. And the temperature um, has gone up more than a degree since 1880. So that's the least be all right. spectacular of all of those stats to me. Temperature. Yeah. One degree in 100 years is a lot, man. Think about how long the Earth's been around. A thousand years... That's t- more than ten degrees. Yeah, that's hot. That 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 you know what that means? That means f-ing dragonflies bigger than a dog. Have you? Do you remember those dinosaur books yeah. you got? Yeah. The dragonflies were big, man. But it's good because it means- imagine going to your garden and seeing a dragonfly <laughs> as big as a dog. But it's good because the the the, um, the the region that makes champagne that 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 area of nice chalky cliffs and warm uh, cool air but warm in the summer is going to drift up to the south of England and yeah, be, makes brilliant think wine. of all of the people dying in yeah, like think Africa. of the wine think of the wine Nick <laughs> Well, you know, listeners, it's just me and you now. Nick's gone. Um, I just thought I'd do a little sign-off to say the end of Hot Fuzz, unless anyone else would... No! no! Oh, hello, it's Brian. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing, Brian? I'm all right, mate. Uh, I, do you know what? I haven't, feel like I haven't seen you in ages. I've been here. How, how's your Easter? Not bad. I spent it with Marjorie with the wife. Did you, like, Marjorie, do you guys buy East, East Road to each other? You essentially vacant. <laughs> Is that a hill? Yes, actually, me, mate. <laughs> you always talk about right, these places yeah, in Wolverhampton. That, like, I've, nev- I've never been to Wolverhampton. We was going to go to Kinva. Kinva. And we come back and we went. Because you've taught me about Kinva. We went to uh, Nature Reserve down in Cotwell End or something. It's oh. And we went essentially Reekin and we had an Easter egg. Where, did you, where did you propose to Marjorie, Brian? Uh, on top of the Reekin. <laughs> What's the Reekin? It's a little hill near Telford, mate. Oh, how romantic. Was the yes. sun going down? No, you have Slade on the radio? Okay, do you have a stick or backs with you? No, they're all dicks, mate. Sorry to anyway, bring up. What did you listen? We, we were talking about hot fuss today, Mario. Love it, love it. Do you like that one? Do you like the Love it, love it. All these things that I have done, I'm not solving. I'm going to soldier. I love a soldier. Do you like the soldier one? I've got solving. I'm a soldier. That's pretty deep, isn't it? They should have called it I Ain't No Soldier, mate. That's what they should have called it. Oh, you know, he's moving that tune. I don't know why it touches me somewhere. It's very soothing. Yeah, maybe I don't want to know about that. Yeah, um, when he comes to the climax and all the other women singing. Do you know what I mean? The chorus. Yeah, he likes one. Well, Brian, you know, it's been very enjoyable talking to you because we've only got one more um, uh, uh, album to do of Science Final. So you've got, well, we've got one last chance to hear you. So I'm glad I found out about you and Marjorie and how you proposed to her. Um, and... Um, Oh. Right. <laughs> well, I'll come back next week. Next time we do it, please do that. Bye bye.